Let's recap the B&B principle. The first B stands for birthday and the second for bleach. The principle of birthday states that wherever you go on planet Earth, you will never in your life bump into somebody who does not have a birthday. What birthdays do is inform people that before this day they did not exist. Having not existed, you couldn't have possibly created yourself. Having not created yourself, you couldn't have possibly know on your own what to do with a life you never created. Therefore, B. The second B stands for bleach and is representative of the principle that whatever existed before you arrived on planet Earth will not change its reality just to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes, thoughts and hopes, like bleach. By the time you arrived on planet Earth, bleach was not a friendly drink. Therefore, even if you beg, plead, cajole, threaten, bribe, explain logically to the bleach that it's anyway wet in a bottle and you're on the point of dehydration, it will not become a friendly drink for you for the simple reason that it is not motivated to accommodate your needs, dreams, fantasies, wishes and hopes since it does not need you as evidenced by the fact that by the time you arrived on planet Earth it was here before you. It is therefore independent of you. It therefore will not accommodate you. If you want to remain safe from bleach, you are dependent on the people who were here before your birthday, who are in the know, who will share with you the rules of bleach so that you can accommodate those laws. So that all of life is a massive attempt to discover the rules of life from those in the know who were here before us so that we can accommodate those rules so that we remain safe and happy. That was a very good question and it's an important question that how could it be that Hashem uh, created the world in uh, intending to run it with justice and then he changed his mind as it contradicts a uh, verse where he says, for I am not a human being to change my mind, and yet he did. And uh, the answer is, one of the answers is to teach us that that's exactly what it means to be godly because one of the things that he created us for is that we should be as similar as possible to him, which is why he created us in his divine image. So we should have the tools we need to be as similar as possible to, which is the greatest pleasure a human being can ever get to. And a godly thing to do is that even if you come into a relationship with very high, lofty intention, that it's going to be the most idealistic relationship ever, but if the person that you're in a relationship with it can't handle your strictness, then the godly thing to do is to readjust and reevaluate and accommodate the other person and come down with compassion and kindness and softness. That's exactly the message of what it means to be godly in human relationships. So that's an important message. So since Hashem is using the concept of change, which is anyway the fabric of life, the very oxygen of life is characterized by change inhale exhale and every single minute is a brand new moment since Hashem is using the very feature of life which is created by constant change in flux to relate to us meaning a new moment of life is opportunity to thank Hashem for whatever was great in the past an opportunity to ask him that things should continue being great, that things should improve, things should come better. A new moment of life can, is, can be a moment of reflection, uh, a moment of pain, a moment of disappointment, a moment of anxiety. It's an opportunity to pray. It's an opportunity to relate to Hashem in a brand new way. Every single moment of life is actually an opportunity to relate to Hashem in a brand new way, and that's what keeps relationships dynamic and exciting and vibrant. People get bored out of relationships when they become stalemate, 
when nothing new is happening. With Hashem, that's not happening. Always something new to beg of Him, always something great to thank Him for. So there's no reason to assume that the next moment isn't going to be filled with something great to thank Him for. And what about if the next new moment proves to be painful? It could still be turned around to a great opportunity to thank him for something. Why? The Baal Shem Tov said a, a very interesting insight. We say in our tefillahs of um, Shabbos morning, we say, um, it's, it's in the Zemira. Some people think of Friday night, which basically means, draw upon me your kindness. Because you're a God of um, passion and vengeance. So, kind of means zealous, zealous and vengeance. So, the Baal Shem Tov asked, this, these two uh, things contradict each other. Be compassionate to me because you're vengeful. That's scary. If anything, please don't be vengeful to me, ever. Only be vengeful to the wicked people. So, what does that mean? I mean, the justification for you to be kind to me is because you're by nature vengeful. So, uh, one of the things Hashem describes himself is that he's Kael Kanavanaikam, Kael Nakomas Hashem. He's a vengeful God. He does not overlook the sins of the wicked. So, since that's who you are, be kind to me. I mean, that would be the last thing I would ask for. So, the Baal Shem Tov says that they we are begging Hashem that he should be vengeful to us with compassion. How can that bring out his vengefulness? So he gives the following parable. He says, imagine that there was a, a servant extremely loyal to his master. And as these parables always go, his fellow colleagues got jealous at the favoritism and the great relationship and the exclusivity and all the excitement and all the perks you get when you're in a great relationship with someone powerful and all that stuff. So they went and they would uh, try and turn him against the king and he wouldn't want to listen. But from so much convincing and hearing and brainwashing, he was starting to doubt the king, and of course the long-term plan that they had was they should fall out of favor with the king. How will he fall out of favor? He'll rebel against the king, and from a lot, a lot of hard work and good marketing and strategy and skills, they got him on their side. The day came when they came to tattletale upon him on the king out of jealousy, and the king, of course, wouldn't hear of it, but eventually the king couldn't ignore that he was obviously doing things that were working against the king. And the king just couldn't bear the thought that he was going to punish and hurt such a loyal servant. So the king came up with a plan. And he called him in and he said, you know, I'm thinking about your unbelievable years of dedication and loyalty to me. It was just totally astounding. And he started bringing up in his memory, at this time you saved me in this one. This time your advice there was just totally life-altering, life-changing, and he started bringing up all the good things he did, and I decided that I'm giving you a plot of land with a 100,000 workers, builders, architects, and you're going to build yourself a beautiful palace and workers, and I want you to enjoy the perks that you get for your years of dedication and loyalty to me, and um, this is going to be my reward to you. And with every word that the king said, the servant felt worse and worse and worse till he fell apart from his guilt conscious pricking him and needling him and just until he finally he broke down in confession and he sobbed uncontrollably and begged the king forgiveness for his newest spate of uh, disloyalty that was just totally 
created by the enemies of the king. And so the king got the great confession out of him, and he begged for his uh, forgiveness. And the king, uh, and he said, and what kind of person I am? Where was I? What was I thinking? For such a great king who gives me so much good and is so kind and compassionate to me and rewards me for things that I anyway had to do, because you're so magnificent, so benevolent, and so <coughs> incredibly kind to do such huge acts of generosity to me over such a king, for such a king I rebelled, I just can't forgive myself for it because his whole concept of the king was now totally different and it just hurt him even more. And so the king said, don't worry, forgive you, you're human, I can understand, I still want you to have that palace. And now what was his relationship with the king? Now there is for no money in the world can anybody ever convince him to believe one bad word on the king. So the king's way of venging, of a vengeance, was by being so good to the servant that the servant had no choice but to have come round and change his mind and be reconvinced that everything that they said about the king wasn't true because now he knows from personal experience. So the Barshanta says, We beg Hashem, do such great, unbelievable kindness for us. Kale kind of an icon because you're a god of vengeance. I, maybe I don't merit it, but show me in your love how amazing you are so that I will come to confess and I will come to admit that it's my problem that I don't have a good enough relationship with you and I will come to regret it and I'll come to repentance from love and that will be the greatest revenge you can have. So that's the essence of the tefillah. So again, there's no reason to assume that Hashem, who is anyway now in the mode of working with us Jewish people from enormous love, there's no reason to assume that he won't change things for us in the next moment, even if things for us a minute ago were no good. So that's one rational argument. Another one is because the Gemara Masech Shabbat says, Yisrael Eisla Mazla. Um, means Yisrael have a muzzle we have luck so this contradicts what we know from a, a different part of the Talmud that tells us that a muzzle be Yisrael that uh, we are not under the jurisdiction of the constellation that's our good luck that we are not uh, you know uh, no fate is guiding our lives so what's this what the Gemara is saying the answer is that what Yisrael has a malach. Rashi in the Gemara of Shabbat says that it means that every Yid has a personal attendant, personal um, defending malach, every single single Yid, that escorts him throughout his life every day, day and night, night and day. And what does that malach do? That's our good luck. A non-Jew doesn't have that. What's our, what does that malach do? He defends us. To such an extent that even if we're going to have, the Gemara says, even if we have 999 malachim, angels, who want to prosecute us, Hashem would rather listen to this one lone voice of this one lonely malach, this one lonely angel, and he will listen to him rather. And Rabbi in the Gemara says, not only if we only have one malach, but even if from that one malach who needs to defend us, that Hashem gave us as a personal gift, 
if that one malach has 999 accusations against us, and only one part of him can find one good thing to defend us, Hashem will listen to that one part of, to drown out the voice of the 999 parts that want to say bad things on us. So since we are walking around with such a powerful angel, there's no reason to assume that within the next minute, Hashem won't listen to that one lonely voice. Even if there were 999 voices against us and 999 angels against us a minute ago, there's no reason to assume that in the next minute he won't listen to this one lonely voice so that everything could change on our behalf. So no reason not to hope. Another reason is how a person can bring upon himself brand new merit when he thinks he doesn't have the merit to change his life circumstances. So his um, um, interesting story in Medrash Rabba Kehelas from Reb Hanina ben Doisa, no less, that he saw everybody is bringing um, vows to Yerushalayim, to the Beis HaMikdash, to offer them up. And he was terribly poor, and he felt bad for himself, that he said, everybody's bringing offerings and I can't bring because I'm poor. And he decided, no, he wants to do something to show Hashem his love, even though he doesn't have the money. So he went up to the edge of the town, and he found there a stone, and it looks like he was artistic, and he carved out a gorgeous shape of the stone. And he wanted to take up to Shalim as a gift to Hashem in the base of Mikdash, that it should be somehow as a nice, pretty ornament somewhere in the base of Mikdash. And he couldn't lift the stone himself. So Hashem made him a miracle. And five workers, strong workers came, men, and he asked them, will you lift the stone for me? And they said, only if you give us a hundred golden coins, which he didn't have. He, the Medrash says he put his hands in the pocket and he said, I'm sorry, I can't afford it now. So will you do it for cheaper? They said no and they went away. He threw up his hands to Hashem and he begged Hashem. He said, please, I also want to be part of the people who are bringing you free will donations and showing their love to you and bringing you carbonos and sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash. So Hashem sent him five angels and he asked them, would you carry the stone for me to Rishalayim? They said, we'll do it for five coins, which was very, very cheap, but only if you help us transport it. So the five coins were so cheap and he was able to afford it. And he helped them carry it and he, the stone and his beautiful stone arrived in Rishalayim. And the Medrash here is asking, the Mepharshim Medrash here is asking um, two questions. Number one, if he knew very well he didn't have the money for the hundred gold coin, why did he put his, his hands in his pocket? As if, and then to say no. And secondly, why did the angels, who anyway were using angelic powers to transport it, why did they say only if you help us? It says fascinating answer. Number one, if a person really, really wants to do something, he is allowed to have irrational hope that if he's doing something for Hashem's sake, to glorify Hashem's honor, he's allowed to have irrational hope that he'll put his hand in the pocket and somehow the money will appear. Proof being that angels appeared. And in the end it happened. So, and, it was, and it was irrational for him to imagine that this can somehow get transported by human koichas to the thing. But Hashem helped him. So another source where a person has a right to hope that things will magically happen for him is if he means it for Hashem's glory. 
And the second, to answer the second question, why did the Malachim ask for his help in supporting them, which means he also got transported magically to Yerushalayim? What, you know, by touching a stone, why did they ask for his help? He should put his hand on the stone. The answer is that even angels, when they're doing Hashem's mission to fulfill the will of a holy person who is asking for an irrational miracle to happen to him because he wants to glorify himself, even miracles are going to be dependent on a tzaddik's physical hands and contribution to achieve what they need to achieve because the tzaddik is more greater than the angel. So that's a good way. Next time you need a, a miracle, emergency, just think of something good you want to do for Hashem. And you're allowed to hope for a miracle. There's a story in Alain Le Shabbat, Shemois, page 340. There's a story of the Klozenberg Rebbe um, that Rabbi Yitzchak Silverstein, you know who he is? From Ramat al-Khanan, is Rabbi Ham Kanievsky's brother-in-law, Rabbi Eliyash's son-in-law. So he's a big dying. And uh, he wrote many, many books. One of them is Alain Le Shabeah. So he writes this following story that one time he was in Atania and he bumped into a non-Jew who needed medical, medical help. He recognized the non-Jew from his day when he was in Switzerland. And he said, come, I'll take you to a very famous uh, professional hotel, uh, uh, hospital, that the Klosenberg Rebbe is Sadek Levrocha, who's a Holocaust survivor, founded. And it's in Natania. It's called Laniado. And he took him, and the guy got the appropriate professional help that he needed. He got all fixed up. He said that he was particularly gratified to be able to do this favor. Why? Because he knew the story behind the, the hospital. The story was that the Nazis, in Mahshimam, um, one of them beat up the Klosenberger Rebbe, and he was in a pool of blood, beat him just for fun. And he was running around trying to find bandages to stay the blood, and he couldn't find any. Then he saw a group of uh, Nazi, uh, Germans sitting around around a bonfire to warm themselves in a freezing cold day. So he thought if he put his hand near the fire, it'll warm up, so maybe it'll heal quicker. And they, of course, couldn't bear that a Jew is having a, any measure of... Uh, you know, comfort or convenience. So they start screaming at him that the bonfire was not lit for the Jews and they shoot him away with sticks. And it was, they hurt him so much, beat him so badly, he was running away. And at that time, he vowed to Hashem that if Hashem would survive him, cause him to survive, he would build a hospital, professional hospital, that would provide medical care to any human being, Jew or non-Jew professional medical care. So when this guy from Switzerland got the medical attention he needed, it made, it gave, um, you know, it strengthened Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein's Muna that when somebody is an ace sorrow and a tremendous big problem and he vows to do something good for Hashem, a miracle can happen. And Hashem survived him. And not only was he able merit to found great Torah institutions and yeshivas and rebuild the Tzanda dynasty all over the world, etc., etc., etc. He also fulfilled his promise and built that hospital that to this day is a very professional hospital. So that's another good reason why it's um, a good strategy, why you can, you can hope. Another reason why you can hope that anything good can happen to you from one moment to the next is because Hashem's goodness is endless. Because it's a fact. 
Hashem's goodness and kindness will never end. Since he is infinite, he's Ainsov, his goodness and his kindness will never end. And he says about himself, Chesed Kael Kaliyam, he does, he does Chesed, does kindness with people all day long, every single, single day. So why shouldn't he do a kindness for you? Oilam Chesed Yuboni created the world for the sake of giving us kindness and bestowing upon us kindness. Another reason is, the Chavis Halvava says, that even if a person thinks that he cannot merit a miracle, he should know two things. First of all, it's in chapter one. He says, number one, even if a person isn't worthy, he can assume that Hashem will answer his, his request anyway, because Hashem desires to do kindness. He plain desires to do kindness, just good-hearted, so to speak, desires to do kindness, so you can rely on his kindness. And more importantly than that, secondly, he says that just for the fact that you have the merit, that you recognize that only Hashem himself can take care of all your needs and nobody else has any power to help you, now, because you realize this and you acknowledge that, you now become deserving that he should fulfill your request just because you acknowledge that he's the only one who can help you. So you do deserve it in the end. So you can, you can, it can be a life changer from one minute to the next. Another reason um, why it makes sense to hope is because sometimes when we're in a big problem and we go to a righteous person, to a tzaddik, and he gives us a blessing, the second you receive a blessing from a tzaddik, you are allowed to hope that your life is going to change from one minute to the next to the good. Why? Because we see, in, where do we have a precedent of this in history? We see that it says that in Medrash Rabbah, Pashas Mikates, uh, test, it says that the famine in Mitzrayim was, it's a difference of opinion. Some say 14, it would have lasted 14 years. Some say it would have lasted 28 years. Some say it was destined to last 42 years. And it only lasted two years. Fact. Why? Because after two years, Yaakov Avinu, Yosef's father, came down. He gave a bracha to the Nile River, that it should start overflowing again and provide bounty from its rhyme at the end of the famine. So we see that the brach of can change everything. Now, what can stop us? What can stop us from going to a tzaddik for a bracha? And we can be helped. As a matter of fact, even if only a tzaddik only knows about our problems and in his thoughts... He wants to help us and gives us a prayerful, wishful thought in his brain. Even if it doesn't articulate and officially uh, pray to Hashem, he's just thinking a prayerful thought on your behalf because he knows about your problem. It can save you. Here's a Medrash Kahelas. says a fascinating story that Rabbi Kiva, no less, was walking past a river, uh, past a sea, and he saw a ship that he knew that a tremendous Talmud Chacham was on this uh, boat, ship, and he saw it sinking. And he said, In his heart, he had tremendous pain for all the Torah that's going to go lost, that this Talmud Chacham can no longer teach Torah because he's now he's sunk to the bottom. He just thought about it. Believe it or not, Rabbi Kiva writes that when he came to a certain town called Kapatkoya, wherever it is, I don't know, and 
of all things, he sees this Tamt Chacham sitting and learning Torah. He survived. And he said to him, what are you doing here? I saw you sinking. How did you survive? Tamt Chacham said, from your prayerful thoughts that you went past, I know about it, I owe you one. You went past and you had tsar on my behalf that I'm sinking. Hashem saved me. I went from wave to wave to wave and I got saved. So that's how important it is. And we have to know that we can do this for each other. If you know somebody's having a problem, you send up a prayerful thought on your behalf to Hashem. Even if you don't daven, it could save that person. That's how powerful the thought of one Jew is for another, how deeply connected we are in our souls, that we can save each other from sorrows. Who can stop us from sending a prayerful thought about any of our friends? We know our friend needs a refuah, Yeshua, healing, a shidduch, money, a recovery, um, any kind of spiritual healing, uh, physical healing, emotional healing, help, success. We can all day long wish each other brachas. It can help. I mean, Rabbi Kiva's one prayerful thought could pull a person out of a shipwreck. I mean, what could be more powerful? He owes his life to Rabbi Kiva's thought. And we can do this for each other. And Hashem will pay you back. You have a prayerful thought for someone. You fill your heart with compassion for someone else. Hashem will do the same thing for you. And the day will come when your friend will do it for you also. We always need each other. Life is give and take. So that's another reason that you can never feel doomed. Your life can change from one to next because somebody can offer up a prayerful thought on your behalf and you never know when it's going to change things for you. And you might not even know about it. And it might happen in the next minute. So why shouldn't you're never doomed? Nothing is ever carved in stone. We see there's a fascinating story talking about the bracha of a tzaddik fascinating story in the Torah that really is a very big mystery. In the Torah we find that when uh, Sarah and Avram heard from the Malach, from the angel, that they're having a baby, it says, Vatitzkach Sarah but she laughed inside her, right? So um, Hashem told her, I said, Avram, why did Sarah laugh? And Avram, of course, didn't know about it because it was inside her, it wasn't a loud laugh. But he went over to her and he said, why did you laugh? The Pesach says she denied laughing because she was afraid. So it's a very interesting story. I mean, I have very many questions on this story. First of all, if Hashem has an issue with Sarah's laughter, why didn't he confront her? Why did he tell her husband? Hashem is the first person. Hashem is not a person, but Hashem is the first ever to teach us that you do everything with Shalom bias. The whole notion of Mutal Hashem is because of Shalom bias of Avram and Sarah. So why is he telling Avram that Sarah laughed? And Robert didn't even know about it. Second thing is, a woman doesn't need her husband's permission to laugh. She'll have to laugh when she wants. I mean, what's that? Certainly not in Jewish marriages. Thirdly, what does it mean that she denied it? I mean, what's she thinking? How does Avram know if it happened inside her? Only if Hashem told her. So how could she deny it? Hashem is the one only source of truth of what she's saying. No, that's not true. The next thing, the pastor says, Kiyoreshi was afraid. What kind of marriage is that? You're afraid of your husband that you laughed? You shouldn't be afraid of anyone that you laughed, let alone your husband. Share the joke with him. So the Avodis Yisrael asks all this question, and he gives a fascinating answer. 
which relates to our topic, he says that just the opposite is true. When it came to Emuna, faith, Sarah was on a higher madrega than Avraham. And Hashem wanted to boast and glorify Sarah's greatness to Avraham. So what did he do? He said, I want you to learn something from your wife. You go ask her why she left. She's got something to teach you. You know why? Because the second she heard from the Malach, from my messenger, from my angel, that you're going to have a baby, to her, the angel's word was as good as done. In her mind, she already saw her baby and she already laughed at her baby. Because women laughed at their babies. Because they're so excited. Because their greatest source of pleasure and joy. They laugh and they coo and they make all kinds of noises. Why wasn't it as good as done by you? Why didn't you laugh to your baby? Father's also laughed to the babies. Why didn't you laugh? You go ask her why she laughed. Like I tell you, I was laughing to my baby. It was good as done. Bracha v'tzadik, bracha v'malach, bracha v'ashev, it's good as done. So she told him, no, I didn't laugh. Why you think I laughed? Kiorea, she laughed because Kiorea, because she was a Yerushimayim. Because she had a higher level of Yerushimayim, that's such a higher level of Amunah, was as good as done. So that we learn from here that when you get a bracha from a tzaddik, even though only a tzaddik, a fellow Jew, all, we're all holy, we're all righteous, we're all tzaddikim. Somebody wishes you well, we learn out from here that the second somebody gives you a blessing that your life circumstances can improve, in that minute, you already have a justified rational basis to hope that things will change. And you have a, you should believe in it. The more you believe in it, the more will happen for you. So that's another reason why it makes sense to hope. Another reason why it makes sense to hope is because Hashem is Zoyche Chazde Ovois. And we all have great ancestors. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarivka, Rachleh. And we have personal ancestors at this point in history. We're in 21st century. We all have great people. And all our ancestors, they all prayed for us. How do I know? Because they used the same siddur as us. And the Antje Knesset made the same siddur 2,000 years ago. And in the siddur it says, They used our siddur and they davened for you. So if Hashem doesn't want to answer me because I don't have the merits, but he's answering them. So, and then I get the benefit for it. So why can't your life circumstances change from one way to the next? If Hashem decides not to answer your ancestors. Another reason why it makes sense to hope is because even you yourself, you don't know when your personal merit is going to come to protect you and defend you. Something that you did a long time ago. Here in the Medrash Kahela says, also in chapter 1, says um, about Shlomo Melech, shockingly enough it says, a pasuk about him, that he is considered... Um, um, a diligent person. Lucky is somebody who's a diligent person. He, have you seen a diligent person? He shall stand before kings. So the Medrash here in Kehela's Proverbs is saying, this refers to Shlomo Melech, that because he was diligent, his life got saved and he stands before kings. What does that mean? Shockingly enough, it says here, that the sages wanted to relegate Shlomo Melech of all people, that he's one of the kings who is not meriting the afterlife. He's not having Olam Abba. He's been disqualified from Olam Abba. From why? Because in his older, elder, older years, 
when he was in his age, um, old age, he married non-Jewish women, and they turned his heart to idolatrous practices. Of all people, Shlomo Amalek. And a bus call, a heavenly voice called out, don't you dare disqualify him from the from from Olam Abba, from the afterlife, because when he was younger, he built the base of Mikdash. So because he was diligent in his younger years, he merits to stand before kings, meaning the kings who will have the afterlife. Because at that that discussion, the Chachamim are making a discussion which kings are having the afterlife and which kings are not. Because unfortunately, many of the kings in, in Jewish history were not were wicked. And they almost put him on the bad list. But because he was diligent in his younger years and put in all its efforts to build the base of Mikdash, the temple, now this merit stood by him in a time of his desperate need. So there's no reason for you to hope, to think that you don't have the merit to change your life circumstances currently because we all have merits in our past and you never know when it's going to come to suddenly work for you. Even Yosef Atzadik, it says, Hayom Rav the sea saw and it split for on the behalf of Am Yisrael when we needed to have Kriyas Yamsuf. So one of the questions the manager asked, what did the sea see? What did the sea see? And the answer is, Aroin Yishal Yosef, the, the um, coffin of Yosef, and makes a play on word that Yosef withstood the overtures of Asia's Potiphar and he took the garment and he, Vayonos, and he fled the same word is used to show that the merit of him refusing to sin with his master's wife now withstood the entire Jewish nation that the sea split on his behalf. So a person can merit that his merit can last so long even in the life of his children after he was long already passed from this world. So why can't we benefit of the merit of our ancestors? Just like the Jewish nation benefit from the merit of Yosef then when they needed desperately a miracle. So there's no reason, again, there's no reason to think that your life can't change from one minute to the next. Even here is an interesting piece of halacha that everybody knows that it's a conflict whether women should be learning Torah and how much Torah and Torah Shabbat and Torah and all that. So here Ben Azai says in the Gomorrah that a woman, a man must teach his daughter Torah. He's got a different opinion to the rest of the sages. Ben Azai, a man must teach his daughter Torah so that if she must drink the bitter waters as a soita, she may know that the merit will suspend her punishment. What does that mean? Well, here you're talking about a woman who isn't, you know, the most idealistic woman under the sun, who's forced to um, drink the uh, waters because she's suspected of adultery. So you're not talking about the greatest, you know, uh, person. And after everything is said and done, Ben Adar says that a woman must learn Torah because it's possible that she drank from the Mesoiter and she did commit the crime of what her husband accused her of having had relations with with a different man. And she knows in the heart of her that she did do that. And her body will not swell. Why? Because she has going for her former merits. Two former merits that she may have done in her younger years. One is she may have sent her husband to learn Torah. 
And another one is she herself may have learned halachas that is relevant to a woman like Kilchus Shabbos. And those merits are so powerful and so strong that it can even temporarily suspend her punishment of what that she's supposed to get of dying in a very traumatic way from drinking the bitter waters of Mesoita. So Ben Azai says that a woman must learn Torah. Why? So that she should know this piece of Torah that even if she drank, she deserves to be punished for, for what she did wrong, she has to learn a piece of Torah that tells her, you're not getting away with it forever. And the Torah, Moshe Emes was Sarah Emes, and Hashem's Torah is true. And eventually your stomach will swell, and eventually you will die. Eventually it will be exposed to the whole world that you did commit this crime. But, and you, to make sure, but as I said, to make sure that you don't become a heretic from the, your body not swelling, when you know in your heart of hearts that you did do this terrible sin, that you won't go around saying the Torah isn't true because I know I did the sin and, not, and I drank the water and nothing happened. For this, you need to learn Torah that says that certain merits will suspend your punishment. Otherwise, you can become a heretic through this. So that's been Azai's uh, justification that a woman must learn some Torah. So we see from here, what a point I'm taking out here is that a person can have merits that can last a very, very long time that we can come to his rescue when he needs it. So there's no reason to assume that you don't have the merit to help you in your time of need. So that's also a very another very powerful argument. And then a very simple argument that we're all familiar with. Chuvat filat stalker, you can do 24-7. Who's stopping you? And Chuvat filat stalker always changes you who you are and changes your gazera from one minute to the next. Chuvat filat stalker, my gazera. And even if it doesn't change from one minute to the next, a lot of chuva, a lot of tefillah, a lot of stalker can make you a whole different person. It's like when you take a Tylenol. Can you analyze exactly which minute the pain went away? You have no way of knowing. You can't identify it. But bit by bit, it just your pain disappeared. So a constant chuvat filled stalker, which is always shyach, no side effects on that one, bit by bit can mitigate your judgment. So it can change things for you. Another very powerful reason why we should always be living hope is because the Pasuk says in um, Miketz, it says, Vahim um, Miketz. So the Medrash in Pasuk Miketz tells us, that, that when Hashem created this world, he made a rule. And the rule is, Kate's som lachoshech. It's a pasuk in Eir. Hashem puts deliberately pre-programmed into life an end to darkness. Darkness is a temporary state of life. When Hashem created the world, he created the world to give us light and goodness and kindness and good times and benefit us. Darkness is a temporary state brought on by Golos, by exile. Kate Sobla As a matter of fact, the Medrash says that no tzaddik will ever suffer more than three days at a time. Never. Never, ever, 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 ever. Three days is the maximum time a tzaddik can suffer. After three days, something shifts. Either way. But either way, any sorrow, any affliction, any problem a person has, 
It has a natural expiration date. Kate Samlachosha. So there's no reason to assume that your next minute isn't the end of your suffering. Because as a matter of fact, the Pasuk in Devarim says, um, the Hifli Hashem Es Makoscha Yisurim Choloim Roim Rabim Veneim Monim that it says that Hashem can give a person afflictions and illness for a punishment he deserves. So there's four expressions of pain. Yisurim, Roim, Choloim, Rabim, Veneim Five expressions of pain. So the the Gemara Mitzach Tavayah Zorah Daphne and Hay asks, where does the word Neimonim come in? Yusurim is negative, Royim is negative, Chaloim is negative, Rabim is negative, bad, sickness, a lot, pain, these are all negative. Neimonim is loyal, trustworthy. We use, we call Hashem Neimon, Veneimon Atalaks Mesim, Kela Neimon Hu. Loyalty is a godly trait. Where does that come in with pain? It's a negative thing. So he says, no. The expression Neimon is always used to connote loyalty to a pre-commitment. That's what it means to be loyal, to, to, to honor a pre-commitment. And it says a fascinating piece of information, the Gemara tells us, that every type of pain before it leaves Hashem, gets permission from Hashem to go into a person, is forced to take an oath to swear to Hashem that he will leave that person at the exact predestined time of how much that person must suffer through the administration either of a person, certain medication or a certain messenger or a certain good thing. Everything is predestined, pre-programmed and hardwired into a person. And the pain must be a nemon must be loyal and honor his commitment to Hashem before he left Hashem, went to the person, that he must stop at a certain time. So there's no reason to imagine that the predestined time for your pain to stop didn't stop this minute or won't stop in the next minute because we don't know how long it needs to last. We don't know when that moment is in heaven. So we have every reason to hope that soon it's going to think. So people get rich from one minute to the next, so their poverty stops. People get healthy from one minute to the next, so their sickness stops. People get engaged from one minute to the next. A shakhtan thinks of a thought, of an idea, pulls it off from one minute to the next. It's a thought. Hashem puts a thought into a messenger, and then people get engaged from one minute to the next. A minute ago you weren't engaged, and now you are engaged. That means that the the, the pain of, of being single stopped, and now starts a new thing. The pain of being thing, sick stopped, and now starts a new pressure. The pain of being poor stopped, and now starts a new pressure. So there's no reason to assume that that pain, has, which has to honor its commitment to Hashem, didn't arrive at its predestined time right now. As a matter of fact, the briskerov was once a, uh, at a chuppah, and uh, he was in a sad condition at a chuppah, and the chosen took out the ring and put it on the, tried to put on the kalatans, and the, drink, the ring dropped from his finger. Okay, he's, he drops down, he picks it up. Happened three times. So the Mechatonim looked at each other like, maybe this is some heavenly bad omen that they're not destined to each other. 
and they called the sign. The breast crawl frog said, nothing. Go back. The right minute in heaven for you to be Makadish, this woman didn't yet arrive. Put it back, everything will be fine. Because everything has a predestined moment in heaven. That's why Shlomelech says, like, there's a predestined moment in the heaven for everything when it has to happen. That's what's called Bashir, the Bashir the moment. That's called Mazel Tov. This moment had this Mazel Tov in it. That's why we tell each other Mazel Tov. This was the moment when this had to, good thing had to happen. So, uh, um, we have very interesting uh, Saporna. It says in Pashmik case, where Yosef says, they rushed him from the pit. And the question is, what's the rush? You were there 12 days, what's the rush? So the Saporna says, because the moment of his imprisonment came to an end. The end. Not more. Not, he can't, and therefore he can't be there one nanosecond longer because Hashem can't bear to have anybody suffer a nanosecond longer than he has to. So he had to be rushed out of the pit to go to Paro. They rushed him out. And he says, all good salvation for a person happens suddenly from one minute to the next. Even Mashiach, it says, the Pesach says, Suddenly, Adoin refers to Mashiach, it's a possible. Suddenly Mashiach will just show up. He's just going to show up suddenly. And the, the Medrash Kala says a story of, um, of a Tana that left over instructions that he wants to be buried um, in a nice shirt and white sleeves and buried on the wayside, which is not how we really usually bury people in nice clothing. He said, white and pressed and fresh, so that if he suddenly comes, I will be ready. And who is it? It's Medrash and Kallis. And Medrash says, who is he? He meant Mashiach. If he suddenly comes, I want to be ready on the wayside. And he asked to be buried with a stick in his hand, so he can already run. As soon as his cave will open up, he's ready to run, all dressed, ready to go up to the base of Mekdash. Because all salvations happen from one minute to the next. So therefore, we have very many reasons to hope that things will change and none of our lives is ever carved in stone. I was once by the uh, cave of my grandfather. His name was the Shatsarov, Rabbi Shalom Moskowit. His cave is in London. And people go, they left over a tzavah, will that people need a Yeshua before should come and a whole ritual over there. And people go and they have salvation. One time I was there and I heard a woman crying and talking I could hear what she said and I heard her say you know very well how hard it was for me when my youngest sister got engaged before me and she asked me permission and I let her and it was very hard for me and I fagged her and I wished her the best and I never collected scharolid now I'm having this terrible tzorah and I now want to collect schar on it. And uh, there was somebody that I was with, many people were there, and then later I met somebody and we spoke about this incident because it was very blood-curdling cries. It made us all cry. She threw herself on the cave and said that. And this woman told me that she did have a Yeshua. So a person can collect schar later. Rachel collected schar that she gave over to him later. When, when thousands of years later, when we went down on the way, the Machanetza 
took us down to Bovel. That's when Rachel, the Medrash says, that's when Rachel started collecting schar for the fact that she gave over the Simonim to her sister, Rachel. So we can collect, collect schar that we did at a certain point in our life. We can collect it in an emergency. Shem takes all our good deeds. He puts it in the freezer. And when we're in an emergency, he microwaves it for us. So that, again, there's no reason to assume that the next minute isn't saturated. Another reason is because by nature, we are a hopeful people. We are ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim. We're saturated with emuna, And the koyuch of emuna can make things change for us. Just the koyuch of alone. It says, um, Rab, Potsukotilim says, Rabbin machove l'rosha, v'abateich b'ashem echesed soveinu. Which means that the Russia has many, many pains and problems. But, but the one who trusts in Hashem, then he's surrounded by kindness. So the Gemara says, in the name of Rabbi Yemio, Afilu Russia, even a wicked person, totally wicked, with no merit, who bothers Hashem, rebels against Hashem. But he's a Baiteh Hashem, he trusts in Hashem, Chesed Yisraelveinu will be treated kindly, just for the sake that he trusts in Hashem. Like the Gemara asks, if a if a thief asks Hashem that he shouldn't be caught, do we consider him a mammon or not a mammon? And the Gemara says we do consider him a mammon. I is a queer, contradictory fellow. If you believe in Hashem enough to pray to him to ask him that he shouldn't be caught, whilst you're doing something against Hashem's will, violating him and stealing. And if you think he's so great that he can prevent you from being caught, why don't you think he's great enough that to provide you a respectable income that you have to dabble in this and put yourself in danger? It's not even safe for you. Okay, you're queer, but it doesn't mean you're not a mammon. Queer people can be treated kindly also in the sake of their emunah. So here's a fascinating verb from Moscow Slonim right that when Basibas Paroi, um, heard baby Moshe in the Nile, the Pasuk says that she, and she says, I hear baby crying, and this is from a, a Jewish child. So Ramat Khan said, how did you know it was a Jewish child? It could be any child. He says that he heard in her cry that it had a, it had a tone of hope in it. It was a cry of hope. And she said, this is a Jewish child, because Jews by nature are hopeful. We are an indestructible, indefatigable, indomitable spirit. Our years of persecution would have worn down and torn down any nation, but we are perpetual hopers. And Hashem boasts that we are always, always hoping. We're always, 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 always sitting and waiting for Hashem's salvation. Now, I'll share with you a personal story ahead. When I uh, was in seminary in Manchester, I um, we, we used to get assigned families that you need to help them for showers, you know, families, large families, growing, you know, growing, large growing families. I was assigned a wonderful family. The name was Sofa. And at one point she moved houses. And uh, until her new house was ready, she went to live with her parents. So I would go to help her, you know, bathe the kids and do what I used to do in her house to... Before Shabbos, I went to do it by her parents' house because that's where she was living. So I became friendly with her parents and her siblings. And there used to be the style there that if you became somebody, what was called, the name was a helping girl, they would invite you for Shabbos meals. So her parents invited me for Shabbos meals at those times. 
So the name was Schwartz. He was the Sheikh of the Manchester. He was special, wonderful people. He was a Holocaust survivor. And I became friendly with his sibling, younger sibling. So uh, I went to her wedding. And I was already home by then. I didn't live in Manchester. I lived in London. But I was already home by then. But I went in for her wedding. And her father stood up by the wedding. And he said this fascinating story that he was on the cattle train, one of the last uh, uh, unfortunate transits to uh, Auschwitz or Birkenau or whatever. was uh, from Nitri, came from Nitri Shiva in Hungary. And uh, he was definitely going to be killed. He was 14 years old. And he had a very good friend. And this person's name is Weiss. That's what his name is. And he had a very good friend. And his friend lost hope, just lost hope. But he didn't lose hope. He was a mammon. Hashem can save us. Hashem will save us. And he said, don't be ridiculous. Millions and millions have met their death like this. Nobody, hardly anybody survived. And this is the end already. It's like, was like in the sixth year or something. That's when Nazis only came to Hungary later. And uh, nobody survived. And he said, but Hashem can do anything. I'm still hoping. I'm still hoping. Hashem can take us out. We can still get married, have kids. And I'm going to say this story by my youngest child's chasna. And this guy was laughing, you're deranged, you're crazy, and this and that. And the day came, and they said, okay, off to your showers, which everyone knew that it meant, gas chambers. And this person, tell, this bocher turned around to him, he said, what do you say now? He said, I say Hashem can still help us. And they pushed in the boy, and he was about to be pushed in, and he's a very, very tall, and Nazi grabbed him by the nape of his neck, and he said, come here, fix this. There was a, a bulb that needed a tall person, needed to be fixed. And he fixed it, and he said, you know what? He pushed him out, threw him out, kicked him out. And he said, so useful to have somebody tall around. Very soon after that, they were liberated. And he said this story by the youngest child, Chazal. That's how he survived, survived in the, in the merit of his hope. Chazal said, the Gemara even tells us that the Chizkiyahu Abelach was about to die. And Yeshaya Novi came and said, you're going to die, not live. So he was a tzaddik, Chizkiyahu. And he said, oh, something is fishy here, something very suspicious. Why is Hashem sending me a message that I'm going to die, not going to live? Whoever dies doesn't live. So he got very suspicious. He said, are you trying to tell me that I'm going to die in this world and not live in the next world? He said, yes. He said, why? I'm such a tzaddik. Everyone knows what Sitka was a tremendous tzaddik. So he said, because you didn't get married and have kids. So he said, I couldn't help it. I saw Baruch HaKodesh that I'll give birth to Menashe Melech Yisrael. So I prevented myself from getting married. I shouldn't give birth to such a big Russia. He said, that's none of your business. Hashem says, get married and have kids. It's none of your business. You know, the classic, Tom and Tia, Mesham Lekeches, Halakam Abitwiyas, Tzapala Ve'atara Achachasidus. We, Al-Tachka Achachasidus, not our job to predict, plan the future. You have to do what, what you can do now. Mitzvah you can do now. Mitzvah Bali Al-Chal Tachvitsen. And now you have to get married and have kids. Do that. So he said, really now? It's okay for you that I'm going to give birth to such, to Menashe Melech Yisrael? How about you give me your daughter? I'll marry her. How about you have such grandchildren? You ready for that? So Shainov said, I would, but I saw in heaven that your fate is already sealed and you're going to die. So I don't want my daughter to become widowed right away. 
So I'm not going to do it. So he said, we have a tradition that we have this tradition so if you don't believe in this get out of here because you're a false prophet because we have a tradition from Moshe Rabbeinu that even if a sharpened sword is at your neck and you choose to do tshuva you can always return Hashem can always accept your tshuva and you can always have a new lease on life so if you're not going to accept that you and because of that, you're not going to give me your daughter. I'm going to throw you out of here. And I have a right to kill you because I have a right to kill a, a false prophet. So he had no choice on the strength of his argument. And he, his daughter did marry him. And they did live it. He did live another 15 years. And unfortunately, he was the grandfather of Nashim Malach Yisrael. But why I'm mentioning it here within context is because the strength of his argument was that we have a tradition that you can never, ever give up hope, even when a sharpened sword is at your neck. And he knew that this argument is so strong and powerful, so true, that he would be allowed to disqualify Yeshaya Hanavi based on the strength of this argument. So do we have enough evidence that it's always important to hope? And nothing is carved in stone. And with as, we have, as Yidin, as Jews, we have every single reason to be jumping around, oozing and pulsating every single part of our being with excited hope that no matter how dire our situation or those that we love, anything can change from one minute to the next. Are you sufficiently convinced? Okay, may we... Uh, all uh, enjoy very good times in the merit of our wonderful hope that we have in our genes, in our DNA, that we got for free. Yisrael, Ma'aminim, B'nai Ma'aminim. By nature, we are a hopeful nation.